Welcome to Bandit's Keep. This is Daniel. So there's probably going to be another intro at some point in the middle of this because uh, I've been recording this in bunches and every time I do a new intro. But anyways, this is the complete episode. Uh, (laughs) I'm going to talk a little bit about the idea of form and function in uh, some of the... I'm going to call them OSR, but to come to the new games that are coming out, as far as the small, I'll call them small press games, maybe. Um, and also going to talk a little bit about superheroes, in a sense. Not the Marvel superheroes that Jason talked about, but becoming kind of a superhero um, or incredibly heroic character in OD&D with Chainmail, a.k.a. Unchained. And why I... Spoiler, I think it's a good thing. I also got some calls from Evil Jeff over at Minions and Munions. Okay, if I can talk right, Evil Jeff over at Minions and Musings, and Minion, aka Rob, over at Confessions from We Timorous Bushi. So, uh, yeah, let's talk form and function. Hey there, welcome to Bandits Keep. I'm Daniel. Hopefully, the sound will be okay here. I'm hanging out in my local park. I guess if it's too windy, I just won't release this. And of course, you won't hear me saying that. But, anyways, I'm having a cup of coffee I grabbed from the corner store and sitting in the gazebo watching the sun move across the sky slowly and I got a notification on my phone and it said that Philip Reed uh, had a new Kickstarter product project going now if anybody knows who Philip Reed is he is okay I don't know his exact title but he works for Steve Jackson Games I know that he's a designer there maybe and uh, he is also in my opinion one of the best Kickstarter uh, creators in a long time he produces lots of projects they're generally affordable. They're generally short runs, so you get the stuff pretty quickly. And I'm pretty sure he's doing, um, I think he said he was doing one project a month for the entire year. That was his plan. So anyway, so this one popped up. I don't know if I'm going to back this one. It's for Psy underscore Borg, which is a Morkborg um, kind of hack that somebody else did, which I didn't back, I don't think. I'll have to look, so I don't have that hack. But anyways, that, that's not what this is about. What it's about is, I wonder, I was talking about this the other day with my friends about the idea that what I'm going to call the OSR, and I know that the OSR is uh, one of those things people have trouble explaining or defining or whatever, but I'm going to take it as people that are generally using the at least inspiration of what they believe (laughs) was old school play and also generally old school mechanics. So Morkborg is the first one, not the second, I think. Uh, to me, because Markberg, in my understanding, is very much a D20 system. It's basically 5e. Um, anyways, but that's that's a sidestep. But I, I've noticed that, and Markberg is a great example of this, as is uh, in the the same thing, but the opposite kind of look, is uh, OSC, right? That is this new generation, I'm going to call it, I mean, it's a lot of the same people, but generation of product that's coming out, seems to be as, if not more, focused on the design and look and presentation and format of the product as they are in the rules. That is, I think that when the OSR first started kind of what I would consider the OSR, so the retro clones, first started um, kind of cranking stuff out. You know, you're looking at like Swords and Wizardry, you're looking at Ostrich, you're looking at Labyrinth Lords, some of the very first OSR games. Other people who were around actually playing when they first started launching those can tell me other ones that came out early on, but I know those are some of the first ones. Um, they we're trying to reproduce a feel or or the rule set, right? And maybe kind of putting patches on things that they felt didn't work well or, or what have you. And that was basically what the revolution or renaissance or rebirth or reincarnation or I don't know what the arc is stand for. Rumble seat. 
But uh, whatever that meant, right? Old school something, right? They were looking at these older games, generally D&D, um, and they were recreating them kind of with a modern take or more knowledge, 30 years or whatever, of experience in game design and RPG game designs. Because obviously if you're looking at OD&D, like I am, you're looking at the, effectively the first role-playing game. You know, I know that people were playing role-playing before that and this and that and get to this whole you know was it uh, Bronstein was it whatever but the reality is is that um, the first published role-playing game I I think is without too much argument is Dungeons and Dragons so in any case rolling back away from that um, so yeah a lot of these games were maybe it's because the graphic design wasn't available maybe it's because they wanted to harken back to what seemed like kind of low production values of the original games which by today's standards of course were but of course that doesn't mean they were back then right um you know getting anything printed back then was was tremendously more expensive and everything else so anyways i'm again going in a circle but my point being is that now we've kind of broken that right we've gone through this point where okay we we all know that the well okay (laughs) this is gonna be controversial so we don't all know this many believe uh, or many of the designers if you look at their games look at it and they go well we've got this real basic like odnd-esque bx whatever you want to call it back me style um stripped down game in or we have like a very basic uh you know uh, fantasy uh was it a funny fantasy game? Or we have a very basic uh, D20 game, like a Markboard game. And we've got that, right? It works. We've kind of twisted. We've added whatever mechanics we think make sense, whether it be uh, usage dies and advantage, disadvantage, and all those other things that people like. And we've done that, right? So, like, how many times am I going to create another hack of BX that adds advantage, disadvantage, and a usage die? It's like that game's been made 75,000 times. So now we're like, okay, I'm going to do that, but I'm going to create a beautiful, amazing, innovative way to show it. And if you go back and on Kickstarter and you look at some of the projects that, that Philip Reed has done, I, <laughs> I don't know this person, by the way. Um, I feel like I'm like uh, promoting him, but I, I just follow him on Kickstarter. He's done all kinds of stuff, little books that fold up in funny ways. He's done uh, LPs with music on them that the, 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 the casing of it is the adventure. He's done CDs the same way. Um, he just did one, which I missed, unfortunately, that collected all of his PDFs together on what was effectively a USB drive that looked like an old-fashioned cassette tape. I mean, it's just cool stuff that people are doing, and he's not the only one. You see lots of people doing this. Some people are taking the really funky uh, art house design of things like Morkborg. Some people are taking the real slick and, like, we'll say condensed and super easy to use design of things like OSC and they're creating what is effectively the same product, right? I mean, OSC is 100%, you know, mold bait basic, Ooh, wind, uh, you know, except for the new advanced one that came out, which honestly, sorry, I don't really care for, but Hey, whatever. Um, that's not just not my, uh, my cup of tea. But my point being is that he's not adding a lot to it. OSC didn't blow up over any new mechanics. It blew up over amazing design. And whenever you hear anybody talking about it, that's exactly what they talk about, how beautiful they are designed. And, and again, this is not the f- new, really, but I just think it's really coming into the forefront of what people are doing. Because if you look at things like uh, Limitations of the Flame Princess early on, like one of the things, because honestly, when you look at those adventures, most of them really aren't that good. Um, but the, the books are really high quality. They've got bookmarks. They're a really nice paper. They're limited run. And I think that's one thing that really shot those up in value, you know, is that they did limited runs and they were really well produced. And I feel like more and more people are doing these things now. And uh, it's just become part of the what it, what it is to create a, an OSR type game. 
So why is this relevant at all to me? Well, because I'm creating a game, right? So how do I want to approach it? Do I want to keep it really basic? Like I love looking at my original OD&D books, my three little brown books and how they're very simply laid out and, and they don't have, you know, they've got fluff and they're, they're not perfect and not super well organized like OSC. But if I were to try to make this a commercial endeavor, would that be a problem? Right? Doesn't it seem like the, the, the games that are blowing up right now are the ones that have this amazing design? You know, so how much do we think that the design of the game, the beauty of looking at it, the feel of having it in your hand matters versus the, uh, versus just usability, I guess, right? Um, so that's what I'm curious about. I'd love to hear what people think about that. Like, what games do you have that are just beautiful if you've got some? And do you play them? And, you know, would, what games would you get rid of, uh, you know, before them, <laughs> you know, because of their quality or not? Or is that just not even a factor for you? That I'd be curious about. Uh, as I said before, and I've said many times, I have OSCI. In fact, I just backed the new Kickstarter, um, even though I already have the books, because I always want to support Gavin because he's a great creator. But... Um, the, I still use my BX books. I, I like the way they're laid out. I'm used to them, but I can definitely see a new person coming into it being like, oh, this is great, really easy to reference. And they don't miss the things that I like in BX. So for them, it's fine. And I wonder too, with like, again, somebody picks up Morkborg and, you know, when it first came out, a lot of people were saying, oh, this game's unplayable. But then I've talked to many people who have played it and they actually really like the game. So if does too much funky design actually work against you? These are the questions I have and I'm curious what people think. So, trying to continue to stay on top of this, I'm going to podcast as I'm walking. Hopefully, I will not. Uh, hopefully, this will be usable. I don't have a microphone or anything. I'm just holding my phone to my face. But um, what I wanted to talk a little bit about was something I think I hinted on in the last podcast or the one before that I wasn't really sure what the power would be like as the the party progressed up the levels using the chainmail fighting system with OD and D as I have been uh, henceforth. Uh, Henceforth, and that's the right word, uh, well, I'll be using the word unchained, which is what I'm calling the system. I'm calling both the generic system of OD&D with chainmail and also my more simplified system, unchained, just to keep my life easy. All right, well, with that out of the way, we had an adventure, not this week, but uh, last week, and <laughs> the party was effectively... So I want to talk about a couple of things. I guess I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start with not the subject I thought I was going to talk about, but I'll talk about that first experience points. So there's been much talk of experience points for gold. I've talked about it a bunch of times. Everybody talks about it. Experience points for monsters. What does this do? Well, in OD&D, if you're not aware, you know, the three little brown books, not once you throw Greyhawk in there, you receive 100 experience points per hit dice of a monster that you slay. Now this is much higher than what Greyhawk does where when you kill something like a goblin, you get like five experience points or something. I'm guessing, and again, I can only guess, that <laughs> Gary made those changes in Greyhawk uh, because people were running around just killing stuff to level up and not exploring and getting gold, right? Or maybe maybe more so than you wanted them to. Or maybe they were leveling up quicker than they wanted to. Who knows the reason why? If people played back then and they remember, let me know. But what I'll say is this. It was a pretty abrupt change. But here's the thing. Much like, and I've talked about this before, much like many rules, if you're only using it part of the way, sure, it seems way off. But remember that in OD&D, as in AD&D actually, you look at the monster's level and frankly divide it by yours, right, to figure out what it's worth. So in other words, if you are fourth level, a hero, and you slay a one-hit-die monster, let's say a goblin, you do not get 100 experience points. You get 100 divided by four, right? So you get 25 experience points. 
This allows lower level characters to actually <laughs> level a bit faster in a way, right? And it also allows, uh, it sets you up so that high level characters are not going to run around killing giant rats, <laughs> you know, in order to level up because it would take them forever. And also it would just become ridiculous. I think actually in AD&D, uh, Gary even goes so far as to say that like, if it's not challenging, just don't give him any experience points. So I, I don't know, that's not no D&D and I might be misquoting that. Maybe somebody who uh, knows AD&D much better than me can remember that or look it up. As I said, I'm walking down a trail, I'm not going to look it up. But point being, this has worked out really well. The characters, especially, okay, so what's really cool about this is it helps balance out the play, right? So if you have like a cleric, let's say, who, who levels up really quickly because they're only 1,500 experience points, they will get to level two much quicker. But then once they're on level two, if they're still on the first level of the dungeon with everybody else fighting these low hit die monsters, they're only getting half as many experience points for them. So it's not like the cleric rockets ahead because of that. Now, technically, you're supposed to divide everything that way. So in other words, if you kill a goblin that's worth one hit die and it had 100 gold pieces with it, right, and you were first level, you would get uh, you would get 200 experience points. But if you were second level, you would get half that for killing the goblin, but also half that for the gold. I'm doing that a little bit different. I've kind of, I haven't been keeping track of that, although I've started to now, they're getting a little higher level because I think that will matter. But what I am doing is something a little bit different, and this is what I want to talk about. I am awarding experience points uh, as for combat as soon as the session ends. Because... My while I am kind of running a mega dungeon in a sense, it doesn't make sense. It's not practical for the party to leave every single time. And I know some people are saying, well, I don't give it till the end of the adventure. Well, the adventure for me is basically a campaign, right? It never ends. So they have decided because of some random rolls that we did because they wanted to roll on a random chart to see some motivations. Two of them are cursed. And they've got to find this site that's deeper and deeper into this world that they're exploring. So they're not going to turn around every every day and run back to the surface then go back in one day then do the that would just be silly like why would they ever do that which means they would never get experience points which to me sounds lame so what i started doing was you get the xp for the fighting which is a significant amount of xp if you fight a lot right away you know at the end of the session including being able to level up and stuff now obviously if they're like a magic user well, this would be the case anyways, to be, the way I have the system set up. But if they were a magic user, they wouldn't, like, get a new spell just because they got a new level. Like in, in some games, they would, you know, but if they had, let's say, a spell in their book, they could then memorize, on the next opportunity, could memorize an extra spell if they, you know, received that because of the level increase. But anyways, rolling back to this. But what I'm doing, what, I, what I'm doing, though, is I'm holding off any experience points on the loot until they bring that out of the dungeon. So I've got this kind of split experience point thing going on. They're collecting the loot as they go. And if they leave the dungeon, which they just had to do actually two sessions ago, they will get the experience points for that loot. If they never leave the dungeon, then they won't get the experience points for the loot, right? Because that's supposed to be brought to surface. But the fighting experience points they get right away, uh, which now creates a really interesting situation. Because if they get something really valuable or they get something that's too big to really carry around with them, now, hmm, do we want to go back to the surface and drop this off so we can get the experience points meta as character, as PCs, uh, players rather, and as characters, ooh, we're rich, should we bring it to the surface versus the, oh no, we're on a time crunch here, guys. So it creates an extra little layer of interest. So I wasn't really tracking where they got the treasure from 
as I was going, I was just making a note, we'll get the experience once they reach the surface. Then I realized that, well, hold on, should I divide it by their level? But then I couldn't remember <laughs> what level they were when they got it. So now what I've started doing the last couple sessions is when they receive treasure, I make a note. So I'll be able to do that in the future, but I just give them one-to-one experience points on all the gold they've been carrying for the last like five sessions because I didn't know what level they were when they got it. And I couldn't remember exactly who they got it from. Sorry, my note-taking skill is not great. <laughs> but anyways, the second thing that's going on here, so that, that's really cool. So that's working out really well for me. I, I'd be curious what people's thoughts are on that, given the experience points for combat immediately, as in they gain the experience from fighting, so they get that experience points right away, and given the experience points for the treasure, when they bring it back to the surface, as in that's kind of like a, a goal, if you will, or a milestone, however you want to say it. So you got kind of a split experience point track, which does allow for the characters to, especially at low levels, stay in the dungeon a little bit longer, you know, multiple sessions, get up to that second level faster because they don't have to keep going in and out. Because obviously in a mega dungeon situation, every time you leave the dungeon, right, you're taking a risk and every time you come back, which now leads me to the second part of this, which is they left the dungeon, they got a bunch of experience points for the gold, they spent gold, they got some new henchmen, they got some better gear. They got some rations, they got other stuff they might have wanted, and they went back into the dungeon. And random encounter was rolled. They got ogres. <laughs> OD&D, 3 to 18 ogres. 11 ogres. Now, to set this up, we've got two, no, three fourth level characters. Two of them are clerics. One is a magic user, elf magic user. And then we have a third level character, which is a dwarf fighter. And then they had two henchmen, two, two fighting henchmen, which were first you know, zero level, basically. So one hit die. They were in plate mail with weapons and stuff. And then they had, and also a war dog. And they had, uh, they have three like uh, non-combatants. I call them four, technically. Um, if somebody's a non-combatant, if they're like, if the party just declares we're going to protect them, then I just have them not get attacked. Uh, I know that doesn't always make sense narratively, but if the party's there defending them, I just feel like they're safe, effectively, unless something major happens, like a collapse or whatever. So anyways, the, the non-combatants, the, the three-slash-four, three loot carriers and a guide, they kind of scattered and, you know, stayed out of combat. So, 11 ogres, effectively against four PCs. So, of course, the first round of combat, uh, once they were engaged... Uh, both henchmen died <laughs> with one below each from the ogres, as you would imagine. But 11 ogres were defeated by effectively four PCs of third and fourth level. And this makes me go, wow, they are tough. Now, yes, they made certain decisions. They used certain items, whatever. So that was part of it. But this is very good. This is something that I was a little bit afraid of that the scaling would be weird, but it's not. Basically, when they were first level, they may have beat 11... Actually, honestly, if they were first level uh, against 11 goblins, they probably would have lost. But they've reached heroic status now. They are basically each taking multiple hits to kill them. I believe both clerics are four-hit dice, which makes them... in there. Then they were in uh, plate armor, which makes them very hard to kill. The, uh, the fighter was three-hit dice in chainmail a little easier to kill and the magic user of course does no armor on he's light foot and only i think two plus one hit die but because of the protection you know in other words we're protecting the magic user uh he was effectively protected unless they went down the rest of the party 
So what we really had was ogres attacking three uh, party members and none of them died. This is very, very good in my opinion because one thing that I really want to emulate with this system is this very, very heroic, but not high fantasy, heroic. So sword and sorcery, Conan surrounded by 12 guards. He can beat them even though he's got a sword, he's wearing a loincloth, and they're in chainmail and spear, you know. It might be tough. There were definitely moments, especially for the fighter, where they were like, oh man, there's a lot of attacks coming against me. But the fighter was actually uh, survived, as did the rest. So this tells me that this game is creating very, very heroic characters once they've got a few levels under their belt. But while maintaining simplicity, like that is no feats, uh, not a lot of uh, options, we'll say, as far as spells. So it keeps the spells real simple. They're powerful. It's easy to play. And I know that games with a lot of those other things are also easy to play once you know them. But this game is very, very, very simple. And I am really liking it. So (laughs) it's funny. I was thinking that I would get like a little bit of burnout because once they get to higher levels, it's going to be harder to challenge them. It's going to seem silly to have a bunch of ogres attack. But you know what? It didn't. And also in this last session, there was only six kind of like second level uh, fighters basically attacking them. And they took them out really quickly. Although the fighters had a really good uh, pinch point. So it took them a little while to figure it out. And they had to use some, uh, some spells and stuff to get up there. But they basically were able to take them out um, fairly simply, and that's how it should be, right? They're all fourth level now, because in that after the ogres, the uh, the fighter leveled up. So I've got a party of four fourth levels, and they are basically really powerful, super heroic, and the game is still sword and sorcery, relatively uh, controlled. I'm not gonna say low magic because. There's definitely magic. They're in the world of wishing, so <laughs> they're in a really weird space, and there's ogres and stuff, so it's not low magic, but it's definitely not, um, you know, cantrips and tons and tons of casting. It's uh, Vancey and magic. And, I mean, I would argue that Vancey and, Vancey and stuff, is, those worlds aren't low magic either. But, again, they're just low in the sense of controlled, I guess is maybe how I would say that. So, yeah, uh, not really a play report per se, but a couple of things I'm working on. I'd love to get some feedback. So yeah, the experience points, dividing it up. And is that too powerful for you? Would you feel like that's too super heroic to have a party of four fourth level characters or three in a third level take out 11 ogres pretty well? <laughs> like, how do you, what do you think about that? Is that too powerful? Is that ridiculous? Let me know. I would love to hear from you. Send me a message. Okay. We've got some messages here. Uh, this first set of messages is from Evil Jeff. Daniel, it's Evil Jeff. Hey, my friend. Uh, just catching up on your last couple of podcasts there and heard you uh, invoking my name, talking about fate and things like that. Um, re- reminded me that I need to put out a podcast kind of detailing a little bit more about the narrative games and how that worked. But you also talked about how the dice rolls, uh, um, dice rolling, if it's all done by the GM or things like that. And I believe if you've listened to my podcast, you've heard me say it. Uh, you know, it doesn't matter to me. Actually, what my podcast was Che Webster's podcast. It doesn't matter to me who rolls the dice. You know, I think people that say that the players need to roll the dice are not comfortable with the DM doing it because, well, they got trust issues, I, I feel. 
in Che Webster's game, he's doing all of the dice rolling for us on the Saturday nights that we play. As a player, I have not rolled one die. I have described my actions and leave it to him to roll. Because if we're sitting here saying that one person, well, if I roll it, I'm more likely to roll better than you, that's just bullcrap. It's all random, unless you got loaded dice, and then we got other things to talk about. So, really, it comes down to a matter of trust. Do we trust that whoever's rolling the dice are doing it and interpreting them in a way that we feel is fair? So, yeah, I have no problems with dice rolls being out there. I say if the dice rolling is all kept secret, I might have a bit of a problem. Because if all dice rolling was kept totally secret from me, then I'm, I might have an issue. But then again, I guess that depends upon how much I trust the DM. Uh, you know, Che Webster, he doesn't share the dice rolls with us. We don't see them. But that's the level of trust we have with them. But other people, I think I may have had trust issues with. You know, if you're... Uh, GM who's going to roll the dice out in the open where everybody can see, then yeah, I guess we can entrust what you're doing. As long as we don't see wildly varying interpretations. But then again, that's us trying to have control over something that we're saying, hey, we should just let go and, and let's have fun. I don't know. Interesting thoughts there. Thanks for bringing them up and I'll be doing something about fate again soon. Later. Oh uh, yes, that sounds like exactly how I feel, <laughs> uh, you know. But I, I suppose I wouldn't want to necessarily play in a game that I didn't trust the person. I can see why you wouldn't want to show the dice if you were rolling them, because for instance, if you roll, I don't know, let's say you're rolling in a D and D type game and you roll a nineteen <laughs> for an attack and that misses, right? Then that tells the players that the opponent is got a 19 armor class or 20 armor class, I guess, and maybe that would say something. But at the same time, if you're actually interpreting the dice and, um, you know, describing it, then you should be describing when they roll a 19 and miss that they had an amazing attack and it just deflected off this armor and their their hand shakes and it's, you know, this thing is really powerful. So you should, you know, they should know that a 19 misses by the way you describe it, not because they know a 19, if that makes sense in that situation. But... But yeah, I agree with you. There's just like um, this idea that some games where the players roll everything, like let's say Sumbaroom, people talk about it and like, oh, it's so much freeing as a DM when you don't roll everything. But I don't know that's true. I, I think whoever rolls, you know, I oftentimes will have the players roll stuff that I normally a DM should roll, should roll based on the rules. But I mean, who cares, right? You roll it out in the open anyways. But yeah, thanks for calling. I look forward to speaking more about fate because that is definitely something that interests me a lot. Oh, I probably should have said, uh, I said it was Evil Jeff, but Evil Jeff's podcast is Minions and Musings. I will try to put a link if I can figure it out. Hello, Daniel. This is Rob, also known as Minion. Um, with regard to the uh, chainmail rules and the, the idea, you were, you were talking about like uh, taking wounds. Should somebody be, when they're defeated, how do we role play that out? And there are a bunch of call, call-ins. But um, I just want to bring to your attention uh, that... Uh, there's rules in the battle system, fantasy combat supplement for first edition uh, AD and D, for what happens when the when the commanders and heroes are defeated. So they basically have to roll on the fate table. 
And one is, is that the character is killed and the body is lost. Two to three is the character is killed and the body lies in the field. Four to seven, character is badly wounded. One to six hit points remaining. Eight to ten, character is unwounded but unconscious for one to, one to ten AD&D or D&D game turns. Now, Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay, uh, no, Warhammer Fantasy Battle, um, the second edition, so it would have been probably called just Warhammer, ha- also had a um, kind of fate resolution mechanic, and it was a little bit more nuanced than that. So you rolled and you could have been um, basically fine, you can, you can take part in the next battle. So this is ba- assuming campaign play, right? Um, sometimes it's a temporary wound that might result in a minus to one of your ability scores. Sometimes it's a permanent wound that also results in a minus to one of your ability scores. So there was, there was a lot going on there. Um, and I did think about using that kind of table for characters in AD&D who were reduced beyond minus five, minus six hit points, but still alive and stabilised. I don't know. I don't know if that helps. Anyway, cheers. Hey, Rob. Uh, yeah, that is actually very cool. It's weird. I don't know if this is just like the way that life is, but I also heard the battle system talked about on a YouTube video. God, I'm trying to remember which one. Maybe it was Jim Murphy the other day, and then I saw it pop up somewhere else. So maybe battle system is uh, seeking me out. <laughs> but yeah, that sounds pretty cool. I actually like that a lot. You, know, you can involve your characters, but then it's not like you're instantly dead, but there's a chance you are. And I also like that one of the options is body lost, right? Because you're thinking high-level AD&D, resurrection, and stuff like that. So that's pretty cool. Uh, and yeah, I've definitely heard great things about Warhammer as well, both um, the role-playing game and the battle system type games that have like critical hits and these kind of things. So pretty cool. Pretty cool. I mean, I think that these things are all really interesting, and I've come to decide that... <laughs> Much of this stuff is just more interesting than death uh, a lot of times. I mean, not to say the character should always live, obviously, because sometimes the effect of defeat is dying, right? Uh, but sometimes it's not, you know, especially if you read a lot of these kind of pulpy books or the books that were like, inspired by the pulps that came out in the 60s and 70s, kind of what I'll call appendix and adjacent, appendix and adjacent. They, you know, oftentimes the hero gets knocked unconscious or is captured and they're, you know, on a spit above a fire getting cooked by the by the monsters or whatever, you know, the monstrous beasts, and then somehow they escape, that kind of stuff. I think that's kind of more interesting. I don't think that it's uh, always necessary, especially with low-level characters. Um, I kind of feel like the higher level you are, the more chance you have, should have to come out of it. Kind of what you're saying, the heroes have a chance, right? The The foot soldiers are probably just going to die when the battle is uh, lost, but the heroes might be captured or move on to a different battle. So, thank you to Evil Jeff from... Minions and Musings, and Minion, also known as Rob from Confessions of a Weed Timorous Pushy, for calling in. If you've got something to say and you want to uh, reach out, go ahead and call me uh, using the Anchor app. Call me. I don't know. Mess- leave me a message, I guess is the right way to say it, via the Anchor app, or reach out on Discord, I guess. And um, yeah, I'll talk to you soon.